Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon. And I think that's really all the intimations. It's nice to to be back with you in a sense this morning. Um, I I suppose I'm kind of halfway through um, my visiting other churches and fellowships even already. Um, There's some interesting thoughts, some quite concerning thoughts about the church in our country, very concerning thoughts. I'll leave that to September. So there we are. I'll tell you about that in September. Um, but there's also a very encouraging, I just want to tell you a wee story about last Sunday. I actually hadn't planned to do this, but the way uh, I, I was aware that, you know, arrangements for visiting the churches, apart from the set piece ones, like going to visit Fabry and Lee and everything, these arrangements would, would change, and so they'd had to change. Um, Somebody wasn't, the minister wasn't going to be there and all that sort of stuff. So last Sunday, uh, I, I went back to my former congregation, to Kemya, Mount Vernon, and Carmyle. We had been at Kemya a couple of times um, in the past, Elizabeth and I, the kids, many years ago. I'd gone back once, I think a few years ago, just one Sunday, because I had a Sunday off. But I'd not gone back to Carmyle, because it wasn't, well, it was 12 o'clock, it's not the most convenient time to go to church, I have to be honest with you. So, however, I was there kind of more officially, so I went to Kemya. And then I went to Carmyle, and it was lovely um, to meet with many of the dear saints who are still there, although many, of course, now are in higher service. Um, I don't mean they've moved up to Addingston or both. Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's what they do, don't they? Yes. Um, but um, they're now in, in glory. But a wee story. I was in Carmyle. At the end of the service, there's, it's not a big congregation. Um, in fact, one of the ladies was saying, oh, you'll see a big difference in the size of the church. And I said, this reminds me of UF church, you know, 20-odd folks sitting there. Um, but nonetheless, this lady came up to me, and I, I kind of recognized her face, but not very well. And then she started speaking to me. And I do remember her. Her daughter and her husband um, are very involved. He's one of the elders in came your church and were involved in the church then. Did I remember 20 years ago when I left um, speaking to them on the Sunday nights and that time they were in their early 30s saying to them that really it would be up to them to really, you know, take up a lead and run with things in the church and all the rest of it and they have. But there was another daughter. I had done the other daughter, Linda, I think her name was, it's a wedding at Carmyle way back in the 90s. And then not long after she was married, she was diagnosed with cancer, bone cancer. And it was one of these awful stories, you know, a bit of her foot was taken away, then the bits bit, and it spread. And the hospital wasn't very good. I won't say which hospital it was. It wasn't here. It was elsewhere in the country. And the girl died, just even though she was 30. And I did the girl's funeral. And the mum was a member of Carmel Church and did come. And I remember going to visit her. And not sometime after the, the, the funeral, um, I was tipped off that she, was, she wasn't just struggling with her daughter's death, which was perfectly understandable, but she had spiritual questions. So I went back to see her. And she told me, and I remember that, I can still tell the house, but I'm all the drive where she lived in Carmyle. And in fact, she was quite touched last Sunday. I could say, oh, you stayed in Balmoral Drive. Oh, yes, do you remember? Yes, oh, well. Because all those past 22 years, she still came to mind. Because that afternoon, when I went to visit her, she was, she was upset about her daughter, but that wasn't, she said, you know, she says, listening to what you say on a Sunday at the church and to what my predecessor, Jim Davis, had said uh, in his sermons, and I think you know me well enough, no, I'm not one of these hellfire and damnation type of folks, I can assure you I'm not, if, you've ever, if that was, if you just wait to hear somebody who's really hellfire and damnation. But nonetheless, as, she's, as I've listened to you, 
it's clear what you're saying is that the Bible, the gospel, is that the only assurance of being in heaven is in Jesus. He is the one. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father apart from him. She said, my daughter, Linda, that died, she was, she was a nice girl. She got married the minister, but she wasn't in any way at all a practicing Christian. She'd never made any suggestion that she was a believer or anything. So she said, listen to what you say, my daughter's not in heaven. And if she's not in heaven, I don't want to be in heaven. So I'm not going to come back to the church. And in fact, I was speaking to one of the ministers. I was visiting four ministers in a row this week, um, part of my study leave, and I was sharing this with one of them. And he said, and because you, you don't start backtracking on the gospel, but of course, well, rightly so. First of all, who knows? Well, on the last moment, somebody might cry out to God for mercy. I don't know. I wasn't involved de- you know, daily with the girl as she was dying, so I don't know. But she said, oh, no, she wouldn't be put off or whatever by all these explanations or whatever. She says, no, no. So she never came back to the church. I can also say, I say, over these last 21, 22 years, she would come into my mind. Period. In fact, not that long ago, but six months ago, I was walking up to meet a friend in Bothwell for coffee, and she came into mind. She came up to me after the church last Sunday. And she started talking to me. And she said, you know, she said, and I said, oh, I said, you're back. She said, oh, yes. She said her daughter, Shona, Shona Boyd, had been praying for me, she said, for many years. And she had actually invited me eventually after many years to be part of the God With Us choir. And I wasn't keen to go to the church, so I thought, I'll go to that. And she said, listening to the other women in the choir, many of whom have been through similarly tragic things. And then some we think, which I won't share with you, because this does go out on public um, line. Some personal thing that she found in the house. She said, I just wanted to come and tell you I've come back to the Lord and I'm in the church. And if for no other reason, it was worth going to Carmel last Sunday morning. Because you see, my friends, we have a God who is infinitely merciful and patient and gracious and loving. A God who is the mighty God, and indeed the passage we're going to read in a few minutes, that God who stands, whose eyes are like burning fire, who sees into all things with x-ray eyes, and sees into the human heart, and knows the human condition, the Lord of glory, but also the one who graciously and mercifully and lovingly deals with us. And it might take a few months, or 20 years, perhaps even longer. But God does have his time and his purposes for his people. So let's hear God's word and his purposes for his people. And I wanted to share that story. I hope that's encouraged us. If if you don't hear anything else for the next 20, 30 minutes, let that story encourage you this morning. Let's turn to the book of Revelation and to the church in Thyatira. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. 
I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you're now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I'll cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, do to you who do not hold to our teaching and have not learnt Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. And may God indeed bless to our hearts and minds this reading and our reflections upon his word. We have a God who speaks to his people. And I mean, sitting in a church 20 years ago, and yet God is doing a ministry there. God is speaking to people. God is at work. And that's certainly come home to me as I've gone around visiting both very large congregations and ministers of very large congregations in Burnside, the church that Alan's a member of in Birmingham. You couldn't get much bigger than, than St. Ebbs in Oxford, packed full on a Sunday morning, two services, 800 people, probably between the two services, and another crowd at night, and another service at four o'clock, and everything else. Or whether it's a small fellowship, the wee folks at Carmel, a couple of dozen of them, and yet God is at work. We have a God who speaks to his people and who does so. And one of the common denominators all through all these congregations and fellowships is that the ministers and leaders of these churches are convinced that he speaks through his word, the word given to us, found in the Bible. And so these letters that we've been looking at, when I'm here, the letters to the seven letters to the seven churches, are letters written to churches in set times and situations in Asia Minor, in Turkey, in Thyatira. By the way, let's have a wee question for you. When you think, if you hear the word Thyatira, there's a lady in the Bible who came from that town or that city. And she's in, oh, if I give you any more clues, you'll work out for yourself too more easily. She's, she, she, she's, she's in the book of Acts. Okay, I'll tell you, in the book of Acts. Who, did, who is she? Lydia, yes, a Lydia, a woman, a trader in fine purple. And she came from the city of Thyatira, although she had gone to Philippi in business. She was a, a business executive, you can imagine, with her fancy suit and all the rest of it and her samples and everything else. And she was doing trade. And there, what do we find? There she met with the God who speaks to people, speaking through the apostle Paul. 
And Thyatira was a wealthy, affluent merchant city. All of, most of these places were actually quite wealthy and established. These were the key outposts of the Roman Empire in that area of the world. And there was a merchant class. Sometimes, as we saw the last couple of times, I think it was when we were looking at the church in, in Pergamum, there was a Jewish community there who were merchant class and were very well to do. That doesn't seem to be the situation in Thyatira. But Lydia brought to faith, and we read that she heard the word of God and she responded. No dramatic conversion in the sense of she was a terrible woman who had done terrible things and then suddenly became a saint overnight, but she'd be convinced in her heart that God's gospel and Jesus Christ was true and was for her, and she believed, and then she went back home. And it's probably through her witness and ministry that the church in Thyatira was established. And here is Jesus speaking to that church, but he's not just speaking to that church. By the Holy Spirit today, he's speaking to his church now, in our day and in our generation. His eyes, and look what it tells us, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. The whole language there is really obviously taking up from what we read at the beginning of the book of Revelation when John, in Revelation chapter 1, we read that John is told that he's in the Lord's day, in verse 11, that he's to write in a scroll letters to the seven churches, and he turns around to see the voice that was speaking to him. And when he turned, he saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair in his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining and all its brilliance. This picture of the glorified and exalted Jesus Christ. Just a wee aside there. Craig, who worshipped with us, he moved on to a different type of church, a good church, a different type of church, more suited, I would say, in many ways, I think, to, to him and to his needs. Um, but you'll remember, perhaps, when he gave us testimony here before he was baptized, and remember when he was driving his lorry in the middle of the, them 74, wherever it was, you remember? And he was caught up with a vision of the Lord. And here's somebody who had no biblical background, no picture, and you remember that Sunday, I hope you do anyway, when he described what he saw, he saw in a sense what John saw, the brilliance of the Lord of glory. You see, my friends, there is a man in heaven who does still bear the marks of his passion for us on his body, but he's exalted. He is not now the suffering, broken body. He's the one who walks through the vastness of the universe and whose eyes see into the human heart and see all that takes place, not just in this little speck of an earth, but in the vastness of the universe. He's the one in the book of Revelation, and I continually remind you of this, who holds the scroll of human history in his hand. Who is worthy to do that? Jesus. And he speaks. These are the words of the Son of God. We do not worship a dead God or a dead prophet. We honor the living Lord, the Lord of glory, the King of kings, the great I am. 
Notice what it says. All the churches, verse 23, will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will pay each of you according to your deeds. And notice what this Lord, this glorious Lord, says. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you're now doing more than you did at first. He sees into this situation in the church. He doesn't speak here numerically about the size of the congregation, but he sees into the, the life of the church. And what does he see? He sees growth. Colin is growing his dailyers for the wedding. And hopefully you got your wee bookmarks, and there's an invitation to you all, and hopefully a few more, um, to come at the end of um, August. And we thank the ladies who are organizing the bun feast for it here in the church. That's very kind of them. But the flowers would never be ready if they didn't grow. There'd no point having them, would they? Green is all very well, but unless you're going to get the flowers, we'll buy that flower market. <laughs> there's a fruit, there's evidence to be seen in our beautiful flower arrangements Sunday by Sunday, reminding us of the beauty of God's creation, and there's a purpose in it all. His handiwork, God's handiwork, displaying the God who delights in growth, who desires to see the fruit of His creation. Remember what Jesus had to say? We are to go and bear much fruit, fruit that will endure. Remember what Jesus said in the, when He spoke about being the vine and the branches, and if you don't bear fruit, uh, then, then we're pruned and we're cut off. The parable of the seed and the sower. The seed is sown, and for some it just lands in ground and doesn't go anywhere. For some it lands in ground and there's superficial response, and perhaps people are fired up for a season, but then it just withers away because there's no root and there's no real taking into the life. People respond, and I have to say that's one of my big concerns about the church in Britain today, that there is signs of growth sometimes, but it's very superficial. And then there's seed that takes root, and it does grow for a season, but the cares of the world and the pressures of life and the, the need to conform and to fit in and to be accepted or whatever else choke that spiritual growth. And there's there where the seed is sown, and it comes forth, and there's a harvest of 30 or 60 or 90. There's a varying harvest, but there's a harvest that is made. That's God's purpose, growth. This is the God of life. This is the God who speaks and brought everything into being. This is the God who delights in seeing His creation being bountiful and displaying all the varied color and beauty of His handiwork, and He looks for growth amongst His people. Your deeds your love, your faith, your service, and perseverance. And that you're now doing more than you did at first. John was asked to write that to the church in Thyatira, recording what the exalted Christ has seen. Listen to what Peter says in his second letter. He writes this in 2 Peter 1 and verse 3, His divine power, God's divine power, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. 
For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God's divine power has given us everything we need. That danger has been programmed from the very beginning of time to go forth and to produce flowers. If it doesn't do that, there's something far wrong. And my friends, when God's divine power plants the seed of his work in our hearts, it's there with the power and potential to produce fruit. And the fruit isn't just the fruit of godliness and, and, and niceness and being a good person. That is part of it. That is part of it. But it's not just that. It's the fruitfulness that leads to others believing and seeing. After all, what grape, well, no, nowadays we're all into seedless grapes and everything else, but what grape would be useful in a vine unless it produced the seed that could then be planted and produce more vines? What flower, the flowers are meant to be there to attract the bees to allow pollination to produce more seeds so that there is growth. And it's very evident in Britain today that we're not seeing that spiritual growth. And there may be very many various reasons for it, but one of it is that we're not fruit-bearing. We're not fruitful. And we're not fulfilling God's calling and His enabling in our lives. And perhaps one of the main reasons why that is the case is because we're not adding to our faith goodness and goodness, knowledge and knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance, and perseverance, godliness, and godliness, mutual affection, and mutual affection, love. The church in Thyatira was their deeds, their love, their faith, their service and perseverance was developing and growing despite everything that was obviously happening. They were being a fruitful church. They were fulfilling what God intended for them. And the challenge is, am I? Are we? Let's sing together. God forgave my sin. In Jesus' name, I've been born again in Jesus' name. And in Jesus' name, I come to you to share his love. As he told me to, it's born out of that reality of God speaking his word of mercy and grace into our lives. Let's stand and sing this old song together. It's an old song, over 40, nearly 50 years old. But wherever there is growth, there is always a challenge. We know that in our own human lives. Physically, as we go through puberty and all the rest of it, there's all the challenges, great joys and opportunities, but also the hassles. But that's part of us growing, not just physically, but also emotionally and mentally. And as we go on in life, there's the challenges, the different stages of life present new challenges. And what delights me is often when I see people who are old, I tell you there was three ladies there. The youngest is 80. I hope you don't mind me telling them that, Meryl. The youngest was 80 last Sunday night. (laughs) 
and tell you, the three of you, you and me and Sheena, you were up there at the praise gathering. I tell you, I'd said before, I want to prophesy at the beginning of the evening, I'd said, right, but you're at the end of the road, ladies. You may be up dancing before the night's finished. Well, I'll tell you. They were dancing in their spirits as they left that gathering. Almost ready to throw their sticks away. And that's what keeps you young, ladies. Bless you. That's what keeps you young, an encouragement to others. Because even at that stage in our life, you're the same Mrs. Thompson. I still call you Mrs. Thompson. <laughs> uh, you're the same. Because even at these stages of life, there is that growth. There's you things to learn. There's you things to discover. There's you ways of meeting with God. And my friends, whenever that happens, however, there's a counter-reaction. And there is here, the church in Thyatira. We're not very sure who Jezebel was. This, the, the name Jezebel should be familiar to us. Remember Jezebel and Ahab and Elijah. Remember, a new troubler of Israel is appointed. Jezebel was Ahab's wife in the book of Kings. And she was not a faithful Jew. She was, she was the troubler of Israel. And she led Ahab and others into all sorts of idolatrous practices, including worshipping, of course, the pagan deity Baal. And so Jezebel was seen in the picture of the Bible, but like Babylon, as a sign of someone or something who leads God's people astray. Some commented to suggest that Jezebel was actually the, the bishop's wife of the church. I don't know. We don't know. But there was some influence within that church that had a, a claim to spiritual authority. Note what Jesus says. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. Jesus warns us that in the latter days, there will be signs and wonders. There will be words of prophecy. But they won't all be from God. And we are to test the spirits. And the spirit of the prophets is, is subservient to and obedient to the prophets given to us in the Bible. We must test everything with what God has said in his word. And people desperate, looking for something new, something fresh, something a bit out there. And there's always the opportunity for false prophets to come into the midst. As I've said before, I've been in this job for 30 years, and I have to say I've seen it and done it and got the t-shirt many ways, and how often we've heard that just any minute now there's going to be a you revival, there's going to be some you word has come from this person that it's all just going to turn around and suddenly our nation's going to be, you know? Ah, exactly, brother. It may have been it may have been that this teaching makes reference to sexual immorality and food offered to idols. It may have been that it started off a bit like the Nicolaitans, who also get mentioned in other letters to the church. It may have started off with a genuine desire to move things on in the faith, perhaps away from the heavy-handed Jewish section of the church who still, despite what Peter and Paul had agreed upon, still said that if you were a guy, you are to be circumcised, and you had to follow all the rules and regulations of the Jewish law. And that was an ongoing issue within the church. It may have been order to get away from, and I've done this a few times, I'm glad this platform was designed like this, uh, instead of being like staunch, and I think it was you, I think, instead of being, you know, don't move or else, to, well, let's be free in the spirit, and you know, and it swung away over to this way, tossed about by every wind and wave, it may have come out of that, a genuine desire to see things open up a bit. 
or it may have simply have come from someone who wanted to make a fast buck and use the fee for their own ends. But it's led, the fruit there is sexual immorality and food sacrificed idols. That's a particular issue that was very important. But it basically what it meant was they were entering into and partaking of things which were clearly dedicated to pagan worship. And so they were taking the food that was used in the pagan sacrifices in the pagan temples. They got it out the back door. You see, you could resell it out the back door. People go on holiday. Thailand. Visit these beautiful Buddhist temples. And it's all done very nice. And you go in and it looks beautiful. The flowers and everything else. And incense. And it's all very kind of, you know. But if you were to go around the back, you'd see the poverty and the blood, Literally. The scandal and shame of that pagan religion. And that's what was happening here. And things were coming into the life of the church and being accepted. And he makes reference to teaching and have not learned Satan's so called deep secrets. And again, I've mentioned the rise of basically looking into ourselves and finding the God who is within us. You know, I've said this before, but you know, we have iPads and iPhones and, you know, but even in Christianity, we have an I generation. Where ultimately, I'm the arbitrator of what I'll decide I'll do with God and my faith and everything else. As long as it doesn't too impact on this and that and other, what really are my priorities, then, well, that's fine. But if it does, hmm. I'm the king of the castle. And God, you're a dirty wee rascal if you don't fit into what I want. And that's what happens when we look into our own hearts. The heart is deceitful above all things. And Satan's so-called deep secrets lead us not in the road to the kingdom of heaven, but in a dead end at best, and the road to hell at worst. And that influence in the church was seen there born, as I say, perhaps out of genuine efforts, but seriously misguided. And so I have to tell you, I was deeply troubled in my spirit when another minister within our community at the school service doesn't mention God. When she does a prayer where God's barely mentioned, and at the end, instead of people being provoked to think seriously, they give a round of applause and have a laugh. All done, perhaps, to try and be one of the people. But sadly and seriously maligns the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And Jesus makes it very clear that there'll be no lasting fruit. In fact, the very opposite. Nobody says, I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. Obviously, there might be symbolic language there as well as there might be practical things. Unless they repent of her ways, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. There will be a fruitlessness. There will be a spiritual barrenness. There will be a deadening impact. The very opposite of what the church of Jesus Christ is meant to be about. And just in case, and it'd be very easy to say, oh, that's right about that church 
or this church or that place or this place. That's a word given to a church which has already been commended because they're positive signs. It's a word for all of God's people to test our hearts. Because he who thinks he stands, beware lest he fall. And so we come to sing the next hymn with that spirit of humility, asking that the Spirit of God would indeed descend upon our hearts and wean us from earth through its pulses move, that he would stoop to our weakness, mighty as he is, and make us love God as we ought to love. And we sing it to the tune, Ellers, and we'll stand to sing. And as we close, listen to what Jesus says as we close. Now I say to the rest of you, in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to our teaching, have not learnt Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who's victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter, will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give the one, that one, the morning star. What is Jesus promising here? Well, first of all, he's saying he's not in the business of overloading people. And that's important to say. And again, in church life, the rules and the regulations and all the rest of it can become an unnecessary burden. Unless they're from the Lord, if they're human-made, traditions or whatever, they become an unnecessary burden. And sometimes that can be a real problem in the life of the church. Maybe not necessarily in our congregation, but elsewhere, people just simply run off their feet and overburdened. And that's sometimes why people leave the church, because they're fed up, basically, and they're worn out, and they're done in. Jesus is not that in that business. After all, what did he say? Come unto me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For my burden is light, my way is easy. So he's not in the business of overburdening people, but he is in the business of encouraging us to the one who is victorious and does my will. Paul talks about running the race, and he makes it very clear it's not those who start the race, but it's those who finish the race that receive the crown of righteousness and reward. Many will cry, Lord, Lord, and Jesus will say, well, I don't know you. There is that very real reality. It's not just the beginning, but it's the end. That's why it delights my soul, sisters, last Sunday night to see you full of the joy of the Lord. That's what should be. I was rebuking one of the committees of the church when I was talking. We were one congregation. Was a man was 95 and he was still the session clerk, and he was worn down. And I actually got quite annoyed. And I said, "This is absolute disgrace." I said, when people get into these mature years, they should be getting encouraged and built up and ready for glory. So in one sense, it's just, this is just a wee taster of what's to come, rather than, oh, flip another session meeting, you know. <laughs> that certainly would not be a foretaste of heaven. Well, it isn't this place, but I'm sure in other places it isn't. But you get the point, isn't it? Those retirement years should be a time, yes, when you can use our gifts and talents for the glory of God and we have time to do things, but also should be a time, I'm praying it is a time, when we get really, you know, can't wait in a sense, not in some sort of death wish, but we just want to be with the Lord. He's so real and so immediate and so true and so faithful. And so the songs that we sing here on earth just move on to the song of eternity and glory. 
And there's the hint here that Jesus does have purpose. Some people make much of this. The quote from Psalm 2, the psalm that speaks of, you know, the kings bowing down before the one who's the ruler of the nations, that is Jesus Christ. There is the suggestion, perhaps, that when we get to glory, there will be work to do, not a burdensome work, but a delight. We were made in the image of God to have rule over creation, the book of Genesis tells us, and perhaps in the new heaven and the new earth, his saints, God's people, will have the delight and the pleasure somehow in some way of serving him in that new heaven and the uf we'll draw a line i don't know we don't know wait till we get there we'll soon find out but there is that promise that we will give that one the morning star oh my friends i've done two funerals this week one the lady who was in the guild here, a member of the church, but in the guild. Another, the husband of a, one of our members, one of the ladies used to come to our midweek meeting on a Wednesday night. How vital. As somebody did say, in fact, Ian very kindly offered, bless him, to, to, to do things for me. And I said, oh, no, I'll do that. I know the people anyway. But actually, doing funerals is a real ministry. Because perhaps then, maybe for the first time or the only time, people are made to stop and think, this, this earthly passing is like the flowers of the field. Here for a season and then passed away. If you come to my funerals, you know I quote that often. But there is one alone who's from everlasting to everlasting the same. The one before whom we will all appear, the judge of the living and the dead. And how we invest our lives when we're in our 20s and 30s and in our 40s and 50s and in our 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s, how we invest in the life of the Spirit has impact in how we enter into our glorious living hope. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not just in AD 90, but this year of our Lord, 2019. Amen. Abba, Father, let me be yours and yours alone. May my will forever be, evermore your own. And we'll sing this. We have heard you speak as we've heard you speak to us from your word. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We bring these our gifts as a token of our desire, of our willingness, of our openness to hear what you are saying, not just to the churches, but to this fellowship and to this congregation. And so we offer you, O God, our Father, these our gifts, these monetary expressions of our love for you and of our desire to use all that we have, all the gifts of life itself that you have given us for your service and for your glory. So take these gifts and own them and use them for your kingdom purposes, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
The earth was dark until you spoke. Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon.